Happy Friday, and thanks for spending the week with us here on the Andromeda Minute, a show recorded during the uh, Great Plague of 2020, uh, which is a rather timely uh, thing to talk about because we're talking about the 1971 Robert Wise-directed feature, the techno-thriller The Andromeda Strain. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com, the Airport Minute, uh, the Apollo 13 Minute, and the Rocketeer Minute. And I am Brett Stillo, this week's guest host. Uh, you can hear me on uh, the Movie Minute podcasts, Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Bonsai. Jim, thanks for having me back again. Thanks for being here. It's it's great talking movies with you, uh, Brett. You really know your stuff, and uh, you know I know we can just jaw away about everything going on on the screen because this is like a who's who of uh, second bananas and and people that have been you know with with movie business since uh, they you know Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Folks, for, for every minute you're listening to this podcast, there's probably four or five minutes that Jim and I have just been going back and forth with insane movie trivia. And yeah, it, uh, it, it's just it's just loads of fun. And this is just, you know, this could easily be the uh, the Andromeda 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Get through some of these things. Um, one of the one of the people that we forgot to talk. Well, we didn't forget it. We just kind of ran out of time last time. But uh, uh Probably a, a very important character in this film is uh, is Richard Klein, the cinematographer. Um, I, a lot of people uh, don't seem to know when they see different words go by, like Best Buy and Gaffer and Grip and all this other stuff. They don't seem to know what the job is. And uh, I think one of the more common ones is understanding the difference between a director and a cinematographer. Brett, do you want to tackle that one? Well, yeah. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a complicated one. But I think, you know, a... Uh, Give me a moment here. We might have to edit this, but uh, you know it's it, it's tricky because you know re- you know I guess a lot of people have a different opinion, what a, you know different thoughts of what a director is. I think you know a director is primarily about you know the script and the actors and working with them and you know orchestrating the scenes and you know really the eyes of the movie, what you see through the lens, is the cinematographer, your DP. You know, he's the guy who might actually say, uh, oh, you know, what, what if we shoot it from this angle and we can have the light come in over here? Or, you know, I mean, it's it's a very interesting, uh, close relationship. A good director and a good DP uh, are working in conjunction with each other. They're listening to each other. So, you know, the director might say, yeah, I have this I have this this shot here. Uh how should we how should we frame this, Richard? And uh, in the case of Klein and Wise, they worked on a ton of stuff together. Uh, and you know, Klein, maybe not, you know, one of your more well-known uh, cinematographers, uh, but you know, just a a long, long list of credits. Yeah, yeah, he he goes back. I mean, he he went back. I, I think he went back into the forties, and it's, it, it just. He, he saw the whole thing happen where we, for people watching earlier movies, you had the old four by three, the kind of like what, what we're used to on a square television, uh, filming in a box frame. And he, uh, Klein lived through the whole movement toward uh, VistaVision, Panavision, um, cinema, CinemaScope, all these wide formats and using that bigger canvas to, to tell a story that you couldn't tell on TV. At the same time, you have to remember where he was at. The limitations of what he needed to do was 
he had to tell the story on the widescreen and give you that big canvas, but it still had to fit the center part to make it still um, understandable on TV when they cropped out the uh, what they called pan and scan, when they cropped out a box shape on the big screen to make it fit on uh, televisions of the day. So he had an interesting... Uh, an interesting background in that he had he had started in the in the 40s as just a regular cameraman before he moved on to being a cinematographer. Um, so he had this uh, this wide experience of filming for a square picture. At the same time he was doing that, Brett, uh, it, it, you were discussing this relationship that he had with Robert Wise. Robert Wise, before he was a director, remember that he came from an editing background, so he knew what things looked like, and especially what optically printed uh, things look like on the screen. So Klein would try to do in the camera what Wise would try to do with an optical printer. And we'll see a lot of that in this movie. You'll see that this constant tension where they build these very uh, deep focused uh, images. There's a lot of st very static shots because Wise was used to filming static shots because he wanted to keep everything locked in registration so that when he did an optical print later on, nothing would wiggle and he wouldn't have to draw matte lines and things. So uh, he kind of impressed that on, on Klein's uh, design of the screen uh, by keeping everything locked down. But Klein understood what kind of pictures uh, Wise wanted. So we're going to see a lot of use of uh, very oddball, very complex lenses where you have people in the foreground who are in focus and people in the background who are in focus without using an optical printer. They're going to use a, just a very complicated lens strapped to the front of the camera. Um, and watching Klein work on these things is simply, uh, it's artistry. And yeah. uh, it's one of the better things about watching this movie. It's stuff you take for granted. And yeah, Klein also, as a cinematographer, you know, he did several other science fiction movies. I, I Yeah, I think, again, what you're referencing, he had a, you know, in a sense, he was setting it up for the special effects guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of these guys, you have to understand that once uh, there were there were there were movies, uh, directors like Peck and Paw, and um, you know, movies that had come out like Easy Rider and Woodstock, and uh, all these all these ideas were this rapid editing. Uh, followed by oddball uh, camera play, uh, focus, use of use of weird focus, uh, psychedelic imagery, uh, rapid editing where edits may take three or four frames. Uh, all of this stuff was kind of the shock of the new, and it was done with small small cameras. There was there was influenced a lot by the French, the Nouveau Vague, they called it the New Wave. Uh, people like Truffaut who shot uh, with handheld cameras, they used small Aeroflex cameras. Uh, that all left an impression. These young, these young Turks that were making movies now, uh, they were leaving an impression on classic filmmakers like Wise, like Klein. And Klein and Wise wound up having to catch up with what other people were doing because of this new language that was coming out in film. And you see some of you, you see a little bit of it here, especially you're, you're going to see like split screens and things like that. But when uh, Klein worked on a, on a later mo a movie, I think of a year after this, uh, the Harrod experiment, which was shot more looking like it was shot with uh, with uh, handheld cameras and moving and not, not a lot of uh, optical. Or if the optical uses were done, it would be side-to-side uh, -side split screen. So it, it's kind of, when you watch these things, 
they have the classic treatment. You're, you're using a classic language of film here, but they're also trying to look uh, contemporary. They're trying to look new. They're trying to be with it and here just to uh, partially to understand the new language and also par probably to save their jobs because they're all kind of, you know, gray-haired men that want to keep working in this business, which favored youth at the time. And it yeah. still does to an extent. Yeah. If you, just, maybe just, just to talk about wise for just a few more minutes, you know, an amazing career uh, and, a, you know, a very adaptable career. You know, this is the same guy who made Day the Earth Stood Still, which that's a great movie, but it yep. definitely has the look of a 1950s uh, sci-fi melodrama. And again, yeah, this this movie, very 1971, very contemporary. Uh, it's it's a good-looking movie, and I think just Robert Wise, uh, you know, adapted with the times. He was a you know he was old guard, but you know he's an interesting guy because he to me he represents uh, a new generation of film directors that really came into their own after World War II. Uh, yeah. You know, because Wise started at RKO. He worked his way from the bottom and did a little bit of everything. So did a guy named uh, Richard Fleischer. You know, definitely yes. somebody you can compare. Uh, you know, he, RKO, came up through the ranks. Uh, you know, guys like Don Siegel, John Sturges, Robert Aldrich, uh, Stanley Donnan. Uh, they were... They represented a new generation, uh, and they're you know they had these very long careers that started in classic Hollywood in the '40s. But they, I think, all those guys, they adapted to the '60s and the '70s, and so there's a relevance throughout their careers. Um, and I, I think part of it is also that they would also re, you know they had people they relied on. You know, a good director is as good as his crew and you know you see guys like Klein these names keep coming up in these directors productions because you know it's their go-to people yeah and and these and they're also multidisciplinary. I mean as, as we we're talking they came up through the ranks uh Klein being a cinematographer but first knowing a camera he understood what the what the capabilities were of the cameras the new the new cameras that were coming out also the new films they were high, uh, higher higher speed uh, ISO and uh, more saturated color. So you could push those things on there. Uh, Wise, of course, n already knowing how to be an editor and becoming what would be, I mean, he spent a lot of time at the editing bench with this movie as well as being a director. So he, he be, and what also while producing the movie. So he's becoming what we'd call in the 21st century, uh, the predator, the producer editor who handles all facets of it. And, you know, and, and so these guys knew all parts of it. I mean, they were very much a renaissance man of, of doing these things. And at the same time when they were doing this, they were called in to teach seminars at places like USC and affecting young filmmakers like Spielberg, like Lucas, and, and telling them what they were seeing in the change in, in motion pictures and, and influencing people that would come, you know, Sidney Pollock and those kind of people, people that would come out with movies in the late 70s and 80s. Um, you, you can see all of those uh, seeds being planted in this in this film. And one other thing I wanted to mention about this about this film is that it not only has the feel of uh, verisimilitude, but it's based, the pacing that we're seeing in things like the, uh, the title sequence, the pacing is more like an institutional film. This looks like something that Xerox or Perkin Elmer or 3M would make as a, as a documentary on <laughs> what they did. 
So it does have that gives it that realistic feel. And I think Wise was trying to imitate the 1960s uh, uh, institutional film. Yeah, yeah. A thought, a similar thought occurred to me. You know, at, at uh, towards the end of the credits, you see all of these corporations, uh, all these companies, all these tech firms that contributed something, hardware, information. Uh, it made me think that, you know, in some ways, this movie is, is like a, a, a World's Fair exhibit that turns into a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's some of the most interesting product placements ever. I mean, I don't know who they think they're selling to, but uh, Perkin, Elmer, Perkin Elmer, to this day, they build uh, they build a lot of the equipment that's being used right now to identify the uh, coronavirus as we're recording. So they're, they're, they're still very much in uh, understanding uh, DNA, RNA, and, uh, and taking that apart. So these, you know, these products are real things. We're looking at the, what was known at the time to be uh, for, forward thinking. I mean, they were, <laughs> the Corad lasers I don't think are being used to uh, shoot down monkeys inside of uh, government facilities. But it, it's, it's realistic enough that we can, we can buy into it by, by you know, looking at real equipment and not just some kind of a you know, blinking light prop. Now, speaking of monkeys, oh yeah, let's uh, let's, let's talk a little bit. One of the uh, you can usually tell the importance of uh, of different credits by whether or not they get their own uh, still frame. These are they're called codoliths. That the original name of a of a blank slate was a codolith. So uh, there's there's a codolith that's by itself. Well, it's with the MPAA logo, which is the Motion Picture Association gives a number to every film and. I feel really old looking at this one and seeing that it's only back around twenty two thousand. We're we're up into the mid fifty five thousands now. So, uh, but it, one of the big things that it says here is animal sequences filmed under the supervision of the American Humane Association with uh, W. M. Blackmore, uh, doctor of veterinary medicine, being the supervisor. Uh, there are some rather startling uh, sequences in here that we'll talk about when we get to those minutes, but. Uh, the thing to understand is no animals were harmed in making this film. It looks very dramatic. It's uh, it's kind of scary if you don't know the background to it, and it just you it looks like you're you're watching monkeys die, and you're watching mice die, and you're watching you know people choking. It's it's just Hollywood. They did it a they did it in a way that looks very realistic, but it's it, it didn't harm the animals involved. So when, when you get to that part, if you haven't seen this movie, it is rather shocking, but, uh, but understand that the uh, Humane Society played a big role in this. And we'll talk about that when we get to the particular minute, especially with the rhesus monkey. Yeah, it is, and it is a particularly disturbing scene, uh, especially for 1971. So that's, it's interesting that they had that in the credits. Uh, yeah. As a, and it's a, a G one of the things that really I'm, a, I'm completely surprised by is that this was a G-rated film. Um, it's, <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling that you can watch, you know, you can cut somebody's wrist open and pour coagulated blood out of them. You can have topless corpses. You can have uh, dying monkeys. But, uh, you know, I guess they didn't say any bad words, so it's G-rated. Um, it's, it's a bit of, bit of a, you know, fun for the whole family. Yeah, no, um, no swear words, you know. Yeah. <laughs> No hippies, Dennis. No Dennis Hoppers on motorcycles, so it's fine. It's clean. Yeah. Uh, you know, James Olsen is a nice, clean-shaven yep. lad. So, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. They're they're only smoking tobacco. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, these credits, it's just it, it's hard to 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 pick somebody because it's it's just a who's who of you know just great 
uh, technical craftsmanship in filmmaking. Yeah, and uh, one of the things we, <coughs> pardon me, uh, one of the things we, we should touch on is that we were saying before that this is an in-house universal production, and uh, the titles and optical effects uh, get the uh, get the mention that it's universal titles uh, by Attila Delato. Yeah, um, <laughs> Attila Delato, which I, I think his name, his actual name was George Delato. I, I prefer Attila, but I, I th- uh, from what I, my research, <laughs> it, it was a nickname. Uh, uh, yeah, and just you know, not much about Attila Delato. He seemed to be the uh, the primary designer of these titles. Uh, he was a uh, an animator. He did a lot of background animation for Disney, uh, the the Walt Disney uh, TV special in 1955, Man in Space. He was the the background artist behind that. Uh, I think we you know we mentioned the Pink Panther uh, at the first episode. Uh, Tilda yep. Delato worked on that. Uh, wow. So and uh, and he, he I, I do like there is a little. Um... Hidden Mickey, I guess that's the I don't know what the universal equivalent of a hidden hidden Shrek. I don't know what they call. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, about three minutes in, as we're watching all the or three and a half minutes in, as we're watching all the different uh, uh, government forms sliding by, one of the uh, security clearances is signed by a George Delato. Beautiful handwriting too. So he just did manage to uh, get his uh, get his name up in the in the credits uh, more than once. Why not? That's his Hitchcock yeah. cameo and. Uh... Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about universal and in-house and, uh, you know, we were talking uh, on Wednesday about Lou Wasserman and, uh, you know, sort of the, it's universals, all their television shows. And, you know, one thing about universal in this era, they had snazzy looking titles, Uh, a show you mentioned, uh, I think in episode one, the name of the game, probably no one's thought of that show in years that had very similar titles it was a you know again process shots and uh involving different graphics and fonts and a a mixture sort of a multimedia explosion uh universe had some some nifty titles i'm i'm going to mention a name i discovered uh a fellow who's not mentioned in the credits but i feel like he had to be involved here somewhere jack cole he was one of universal's uh, main title guys. He mostly television. Hmm. Uh, one of the shows he designed the titles for was the Six Million Dollar Man. If you look at the oh, titles my. of that show and compare it to the Andromeda Strain, there are some interesting aesthetic uh, similarities. Uh, and, with uh, as well as uh, there is a repeated shot that I believe uh, when we looked at the uh, well, it'll be coming up in a couple of a couple of minutes. Uh, but when we see the the radar that's inside the van, mm-hmm. there is a sh- there is a shot from that radar that I believe is used in the opening credits of the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> I love it. You know, why why waste it. why waste some footage? Stock footage, ladies uh, and gentlemen. Love it, love it. So yeah, it, it, yeah. So yeah, again, by the foot. Yeah, so. yeah. We could yeah again we could just we could just do I, I think a whole season about uh, about the titles. They're that stunning. Um, but you know, again, I just I just love the name Attila Delato. <laughs> it was uh, in your research. Did you did you uh, learn about his racing career? No, I did not know about that. He uh, was a he was a I, I found a picture. He was an amateur racer in the 1950s. Wow. You know your classic sports car racing. You know you get the MG or the Triumph. You point a number on the side. So I, I found uh, this great picture, uh, some old track in Southern California, 
And there's a Tillo Delato driving, I think, a, a little MG midget or something like that. And right on his tail, about to pass him, is, is Ken Miles, the Ken Miles of Le Mans and <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari. So, uh, you know, just, just a side thing. I, I'm imagining he might have raced against James Dean in 1955. Uh, so that is just... You know, when we when we start digging into these episodes, uh, or when we start doing research for these episodes, we find all kinds of crazy tidbits like that. Uh, we could go on and on and on. It, uh, oh yeah, no, it, it, there's so there's so many to, to dig through. Um, one I would like to touch on is sure. the, uh, the music, of course. This uh, this or tonalities, as you might call it, from the uh, Forbidden Planet days, uh, is uh, Gil Melly's uh, contributions to the sound. A very creepy synthesized uh, music that was you know at the time very popular i mean you, you think about uh well at the time is he was uh, wendy carlos was walter carlos uh but synthesized music was a was a sign of the future it was a symbol of uh technology and uh could be very creepy i mean yeah any anybody listening to the forbidden planet soundtrack knows the otherworldliness of of that sound and this has no no difference to it um yeah, the the credits as good as they are, you you need the music to help create that discord and the confusion of it. Uh, you know, one yeah. thing I wondered, you know, the uh, there are parts of Gilmalee's score that remind me of Jerry Goldsmith and the really uh, earth shattering, if you will, score he did for Planet of the Apes a couple of years earlier. Um, I, I always wonder if, if that's Robert Wise meeting with Gil Malise and saying, uh, hey, did, could you do something like Goldsmith did in, in Apes where it's, you know, don't do something melodic. Give me something crazy. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this thing called a Moog. What's a Moog? Well, well you'll hear it. <laughs> you'll hear it. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I, I was wondering how much, uh, how much he was being affected by uh, what it well, in his more musical. This is atonal. But it sounded a lot like uh, uh, there's a fellow named uh, Pierre Henry that did a, a music called Psyche Rock, which hmm. uh, now people know it as the theme to Futurama. And ah. uh, it has that kind of overlapping, overlapping, many overlapping parts that kind of grow into each other. And uh, <coughs> when they do the overlaps, you eventually get like a cricket sound, which you hear toward the end of this, uh, toward the end of this theme that comes out. Um, and it's just extremely creepy, um, but I just was wondering if what his interactions were with uh, with Pierre Henry. I mean, he may he may have never heard it. This could just be simultaneous uh, eruptions on on both sides of the Atlantic, but uh, it, it does sound vaguely familiar. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, very interesting. And you know, as you probably read, you know, Gil Millet's worked with a lot of jazz guys like you know Thelonious yeah. Monk and Miles Davis, and you can you can kind of hear that weird experimental jazz kind of influence uh going on there and uh yeah, as i recall Melise, you know also did a lot of stuff with universal i believe he did the the theme from night gallery uh you know you yes. can draw some comparisons here so uh but yeah just really jarring and uh it makes me wonder what somebody watching this in in 1971 their their reaction because it must have been just really really a freak out <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and it's it, you know it, it's amazing how we were talking about how 
Robert Wise pulled this team together, or maybe he was just, I, I wonder how much, I, I, he did have obviously a lot of pull on the, on the set, but I'm just wondering if Universal said, well, we can make you an offer, and here's some people that we have in our, in our little uh, uh, tribe of, uh, of talent, and you can pick, you know, pick two from column A and two from column B, and, and Wise went, I worked with this guy before and that guy before. Yeah. Um, I know that I know that he had heard of the uh, the original draft of of Andromeda Strain and became interested in that. But uh, as we get to one of the final uh, uh, credits on the screen here, we get to uh, the screenwriter who adapted uh, Crichton's uh, story, Nelson Gidding. And Gidding had worked with uh, with Ro- uh, Robert Wise on uh, I Want to Live, which they he wound up getting an Oscar nomination for doing I Want to Live. Uh, so it's, you know, he, this guy was familiar to him and, uh, he would, you know, getting, getting seemed to be, do such a good job that he came back when, uh, when Wise did the Hindenburg. And again, that was another one that was a semi, it, it, well, it, it was based on a true story, but it had a lot of elements in it that were just kind of added in. Um, so it, it was interesting seeing this, uh, dynamism between Wise and getting getting could give Wise what he wanted for a rather procedural uh, film and you know he he knew how to write to make Robert Wise happy yeah and again you know uh, like I said a good director you know he has his he has his people he calls on and it's like well we worked well before let's do it again uh, it got, you know it's we, we see that in uh, North by Northwest when we did the Hitchcock minute you know Hitchcock had his people and uh yeah. in this we say yeah wise has his people uh uh boris levin production designer i think he did about five or six productions with wise so um I'm, and i'm sure <coughs> you know deep down in the credits there's there's more of just you know go-to people yeah that that these you know this was his team and he i keep picturing like an ocean's 11 thing it's like we're putting the band back together you know yeah a blues brother thing. He's like, get everybody <laughs> together, and we're going to make this movie, and then we're, you know, come back in five years, and we'll make the Hindenburg, and they just, yeah, you know, they're they're all familiar with it, with each other, so they can they can shorthand it as they're as they're getting through these things, and it's I guess it's not that much different than today making a, uh, you know, instead of making these movies now, people are making these limited run series where you have eight or ten episodes and throw it up on uh, on Netflix. So it's it's a similar thing that you have a team, just have them keep cranking stuff out because they know what they're doing because they know what you're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's just great seeing this at the, uh, the peak of TV movie TVs of the 70. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 like you said, uh, yesterday or back on Wednesday, it's, this is a really big TV movie. Um, wow. Well, uh, Brett, I really appreciate you being on this week, and uh, hopefully, as as we get further into this movie, if you can come back, that would be you're always welcome. Yeah, love to, love to, because uh, you know we did we didn't get it to any scenes, but you know again yeah. the, these <laughs> these titles, uh, in a sense, foreshadow so much of the movie that uh, yeah we could we could just do uh, got here. Does anybody do a po- a, a podcast on just titles? Uh, that that'd be a great one to do. <laughs> well, I know there is. There is that website, uh, Art of the Title. Art of the I, Title. I love. I mean, yeah, I, me too. I, I lose myself for an afternoon just going. Oh, I've got to watch this one. Oh, I remember that, and you you watch through all. And then they they usually have a great story attached to how the titles were made, and it's more than just you know like uh, Maurice Binder, Maurice Binder, and uh, 
or Saul Bass, they give you a story about the particular movie that that came out and what you know what it was relationship of uh, of the director letting them do those particular titles. So uh, it's a lot of fun. I strongly recommend if you get a chance, go see uh, artofthetitle.com. Yeah, uh, fantastic we are, website. We're a movies by minutes group. Yeah, we we are a movies by minutes group, and uh, I always <laughs> recommend that people visit. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Otherwise, we've been doing it wrong. I don't sure. <laughs> uh, if uh, if folks are interested in this type of, uh, of format, there's a whole bunch of other uh, movies that are covered in the movies by minutes format. So you can find it by surprisingly enough going to see moviesbyminutes.com. There are at the time of this recording over 130. Uh, movies available for your uh, perusal and uh, uh, enjoyment, including yours, uh, Brett. Let's talk about a little bit about your uh, films, which I've enjoyed. You kind of break format, but I do enjoy the way you talk about your films. Yeah, yeah. My my co-host and friend Josh Horowitz and I, we do, do a slightly different variation. Uh, our shows are five minutes at a time, so it's sort of a more of a weekly digest form, but uh, it's it's basically the same. We break it down. We did Five Minutes of Trouble, where we analyzed and dissected and reassembled uh, John Carpenter's uh, Big Trouble in Little China. That was a lot of fun. Jim, we had you on that show. Uh, a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. To this day, I, I remember your uh, your excellent uh, description of saltwater tanks and freshwater tanks. You don't want to miss that one, folks. <laughs> I to this day, when I'm watching a movie and somebody's swirling around in the water, I look for the bubbles, and we'll just leave it there. Look <laughs> for the bubbles. I've, I've ruined I've ruined it for you forever. I'm oh no, it's fun because you because you can say, uh, "Oh, freshwater tank, up oh, saltwater tank." It's all good. It's all good. Uh, and then we also did uh, a show called Five Minutes of Bonsai, which was about the adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai across. The Eighth Dimension, as directed by Mr. W.D. Richter. And uh, we had you on that show, too. So, yeah. Yes. As a son of the Garden State, I appreciate any movies about New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Very important to talk about, you know, about New Jersey any chance we get. And as Jim said, uh, over 130 uh, movies by minute that you can look up. You've got a favorite there somewhere. By the time this airs, we may have 140. I know it's it's growing. It's out of control. So definitely check out uh, moviesbyminutes.com. Yes. And uh, if you'd like to join us on uh, on social media to talk about this film, we're available in several different formats or menu- venues. Uh, on Facebook, of course, you can find us at Project Wildfire. And on Twitter, the uh, ever-popular Andromeda Minute is, is right out there for your... Uh, edification uh if you would like to listen to previous episodes here or future episodes where they will turn up you can find them on andromedaminute.com and of course subscribe anywhere you want to on your favorite podcasters like apple podcasts or google play or tune in or gosh there it's more every day so you 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 know where to look for podcasts just go and subscribe and get these uh delivered hot and fresh three times a week monday wednesday friday uh so join us here next week and uh we will be going into the actual movie itself uh past these credits uh in the meantime please stay well uh wash your hands stay away from other people and uh, hopefully we'll all get through this together so uh take care and we'll see you here next time on the andromeda minute take care everybody Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.